Today we are going to be talking uh, quite a bit about names and before we do that kind of as a way of introduction uh, I want to kind of talk a little bit about some themes that we see and kind of how that plays out uh, as we go through the Old Testament. We're going to, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be quite a bit in uh, Genesis and maybe a little bit at the beginning of Exodus uh, by the time we get to the end. To the end, But I want to talk a little bit about themes and one of the things we see in the Old Testament in particular, and there's quite a few in the New Testament as well, but for the purpose of this morning, Old Testament themes that we see are very important things for us to kind of pay attention to how these themes play out. There's the theme of water that we've talked about before, from the beginning with the waters moving across the earth to the Red Sea, and as water has played out uh, as a theme, we see the theme quite a bit of shepherd, uh, that we understand that when Moses goes uh, has the experience at the burning bush, in that moment, Moses is serving as a shepherd and God calls him to do what to the people? To shepherd them. Uh, when Israel demands a king, God does not want to give them a king, but finally he does relent and gives them Saul. But as you know the story, Saul never ends up to be the king that God wanted to be. So who does God bring in as the king of Israel? David, and what was David's job before he was king? He was a shepherd. And so we see these themes, and then we can take that theme all the way into the New Testament when Jesus proclaims, I am the good shepherd. And we see how these themes kind of play out through these stories. One of the words that we use sometimes and that biblical scholars use for these terms is the word motif. And it's not a word, we probably don't use the word motif a whole lot in our language, but a motif is a dominant idea in an artistic or literary composition. And so today I wanna to talk about a motif. Uh, it's, it's a theme, but it's also a little bit richer than that. It is a dominant idea that we see playing throughout these passages. We're going to look at it. We saw it a little bit last week, which I'm going to go back to. You're going to see it an incredible amount this week. And then we're going to look a little bit more as we move into Moses' story next week. But we're going to see how this theme plays out through this or how this motif plays out. And the motif is naming. That names are important in our Bible. That names tell us these incredible Story. So if you flip back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 16, it's where we were last week or, or around where we were last week. We can jump back into this story. And if you remember in chapter 16, I mentioned it last week, Abraham is promised to have a child. He's promised to have this child. They, Sarai kind of takes it, his wife, Sarah takes it into her own hands, says, hey, why don't you have a child with my slave girl, Hagar. And so he's, Hagar gets pregnant and then Sarai realizes like, wow, I'm a little jealous of this. And so she's upset. And so she sends Hagar off. The reason I bring this story up is one of the things talking about naming and talking about the importance of names. One of the things, if you go back and read this whole story, which, which I'm just introducing a topic, so we're not going to do. But if you go back and read this whole story, do you know what you see? You see in this story that Abraham nor his wife, Sarah, or at this time called Sarai, neither one of them ever call Hagar by her name. They always call her slave girl. They, they never use a name. And so Hagar runs away and she runs away after she is pregnant and she runs away and then God speaks to her. Now the narrator calls her Hagar through this story, but remember Abraham and Sarai never call her by name. And so we get to verse eight, you'll see it up here on the screen. So he, this he is God. God says to her, Hagar, what does he do? 
He, he calls her by her name, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. So she runs away and then he has this conversation with her. He tells her to go back. And then she does something absolutely incredible. In this story, if you kind of walk through this story, she then does something absolutely incredible and that's in verse 13. So she names the Lord. She gives God a name. She names the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy, she said, in this place I have seen, and look at this, I have seen what? The one who sees me. In this place, I'm a nameless, worthless slave girl. But I've been given purpose. I've been called by a name, my name. And now I am seeing a God who knows me by name and has seen me. And so this story is this, this little kind of incredible little story that begins to help us understand that there is a power in names. There is a power in being seen and not just being seen, but for Hagar to be seen by God. To be a person who is seen and who is known by God. And that is really what all of these stories kind of play out to be. To be known by a name and to be seen by God. Now, names are important, and if we kind of go through the story, I want to go through the story here pretty quickly. We went through the story of Abraham and Sarai and the birth of Isaac last week. We didn't really talk about Isaac's name, but you can see it there in chapter 21. If you kind of start flipping through the story, uh, Isaac is born, chapter two, or chapter 21, verse 2, says Sarah, uh, she, her name has been changed now to Sarah. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Verse three, Abraham named his son who was born to him, and this name was given by God a few chapters before, but he is named uh, Sarah, the one son Sarah bore to him, Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Y'all know what Isaac means? The, the one who laughs. So that ties back into our story of last week. So Isaac is given a name. Now, if you know the story of Isaac, uh, Isaac marries Rebekah and they have twins, Esau and Jacob. Uh, we usually call them Jacob and Esau, but Esau was born first. Esau is the hairy one and he uh, is the firstborn. When Jacob is born, he is grasping the heel. Do y'all remember these stories from, from Sunday school when you were a kid? He's grabbing the heel of his brother and so they name him Jacob, which essentially just means heel. He is named Jacob and then Esau sells his birthright to Jacob and Jacob deceives his father, Isaac, in order to get that birthright. Jacob flees from Esau, and uh, then Jacob meets his wife or his future wife, his father-in-law, Laban, falls in love with a girl named, uh, named Rachel. Y'all remember that story? Falls in love with Rachel, works to earn her, gets tricked, marries her, her ugly sister, Leah. I didn't call her ugly, the Bible did. Her ugly sister, Leah, and then marries, finally gets to marry Rachel, so he has two wives. But he is on the run because he knows that his brother Isaac, or his brother Esau, is after him. And they have severed this relationship. And so we get into Genesis chapter 32, which is where we're gonna spend most of our time. We get into chapter 32, and he decides, uh, you know, he wants to meet his brother, wants to reconcile this relationship. 
So he sends out messengers to go and they take presents and they do all this stuff. He sends out messengers. And so chapter 32, verse six says, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. Now, just let's pause right there because I love this little, I just, I wish I could be there to see this part of the story. So he sends off the messengers. The messengers take presents, they come back. And you just gotta know, you know, Jacob's like, hey, how did it go? Well, we met your brother. Like, is, is he coming? Yeah, he's, he's coming. Awesome. But I kind of feel like you just paused. You can just see the messengers like, well, he's, yeah, he, he's coming. He's bringing 400 guys with him. So he's coming, but he's bringing 400 men. Now, you know if you and your brother have a disagreement and someone says, hey, your brother's coming to see you, but he's bringing backup. And he's not just bringing like a couple guys, he's bringing 400 guys. So you know Jacob has got to be scared to death. So there they are and they are camping. And so in the middle of the night, Jacob takes Rachel, takes Leah, and takes his, his children, his slaves, all that. He moves them across the river, okay? We don't know why, but I think we can kind of assume that he's kind of thinking through like, hey, if 401 guys show up, 400 plus my brother, if they're gonna kill anybody, they might as well just take me and then they can all run away. That seems like a pretty, so I'll put them on the other side of the river. I'll stay here by myself, hoping maybe if this turns sideways on me, I will be spared. So we, that's where we pick up our story and where we get to our passage for this morning. So chapter two, verse 24 is where we will jump into the story. They've been sent across. So Jacob right there was left alone. Middle of the night, he's left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not dis- defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip, hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and men and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, and yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, or Peniel limping because of his hip. This is why still today Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle uh, as it is the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. So here we, we have this, this kind of odd story and this, this wrestling story. But there's some pieces of this story that that I want you to to make sure you understand. So the first thing that we see is, is that Jacob is left alone. So Jacob is by himself. He is left alone. And in the midst of this, he begins to struggle. He is alone with himself. He is alone with his fears. And as we see in the story, he is alone with God. And there's a question asked, what is your name? What does he say? Jacob. But remember, names are important. 
And in this story, James are in, I mean, sorry, in this story, names are incredibly important. So what he is asking is more than just what is your name. The question he is asking is, who are you? And Jacob replies, I'm, I'm a heel. I'm, I'm a guy who tricked my own brother. I'm a guy who's running away from their family. I'm a guy who tricked his own brother, who has been tricked by his father-in-law, and now I am left alone here on the side of this river. I'm, I'm, I'm a heel. I'm, I'm just stuck here. Who are you? Who, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a heel. And the truth is sitting there with him, and he is defined by that struggle. He is defined by that deception. Jacob has allowed himself to be fine, to be defined by his name. You're a heel. But then see what happens in verse 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob, for it will be Israel. Why? Because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a heel. No, actually, you're Israel, the one who wrestles with God. You see, Jacob's identity is defined by struggle. But that struggle was defined by his unwillingness to let go. God says to him, let me go. It's, it's morning. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And his struggle is defined and it's what begins to, to take root in his life. So here's some, some kind of things I want you to see, statements about this passage that I want you to be aware of. First off, Jake, Jacob was alone, okay? He was, left, he was left alone. Jacob's story that we've walked through is characterized by struggle. And what I want you to see, kind of we could wrap this whole sermon up in one little statement and where I want to go with this is this third statement, that struggle is a better descriptor for faith than comfort. You see, it's easy to believe in a God when everything goes right. But we believe in a God who is there and present in the midst of struggle. So if we could, just real quickly, I won't bore you all with this, but I want, could I, I want to get a little philosophical. All right, we're going to take a little break from Jacob, get a little philosophical, but I'll try not to bore you with it. But I want to take just kind of a, a little bit of a journey of how we got where we are culturally in the world with faith. Okay, so I'm gonna to try to do this quickly. 500 years ago, okay, I'm gonna cover 500 years just real quickly. Are you ready for this? 500 years ago, when we talked about faith, and, and this is before 500 years and prior to this, when we talked about faith, people would understand that there is a God or that there were gods. 
and that this God was involved in your everyday life. So you might be a farmer, but you know that you have to milk the cows in the morning, but God is present with you in that process. Or you might be a cobbler and making shoes, and you know that God is present with you in your job, or you're a tailor, or you're whatever that might be. And wherever you go, God is there and God is present. And so as a farmer, if it rains, who caused it to rain? God. If your crops grow, who caused your crops to grow? God. If your crops don't grow, who caused your crops not to, go, to grow? God. And so God, was per, kind of, God kind of permeated through every part of life. And everybody believed in God. And if you didn't believe in God, then you were the weird one. But then things began to shift. And as things began to shift, we began to understand that, yes, there is a God, but God isn't necessarily everywhere. God is kind of restricted into a religious experience. And so we go to church because that's where God is. And we see this, and I'm going to use Nazarene examples because I'm a Nazarene, and I'm not picking on the Nazarene church because this is every church. It's just our context. But the very first sanctuary in the Church of the Nazarene, Phineas F. Brzee's sanctuary, do you know what he named it? The Glory Barn. Why? Because when they got together, when they came together, God was present with them and God's glory shone around them. That's incredible but it took coming into a sanctuary for God's presence to be there, for God's glory to be there. It's when we started using a verse where we would come together and say, for where two or three are gathered, God is with us or God is present. And what we want to say is, yes, I agree with that verse, but it doesn't take two or three because God is always present. Yes, he might be present in a different way, in a more tangible way when we are gathered, but God is always present. But we started saying things like that. And as Nazarenes, we started doing things, and it's what I grew up in, is we started, we started saying things like we come up front, we come to the altar because there's something special about up here and God's presence, but we know that God is just as present up here as he is out there. But we started saying things like that. And I'm not saying this anything bad. It's just culturally where we were. And I say were on purpose. Because things that shift, they continue to shift. And so one of the other things that shifted after this is, is it wasn't just that God is at church. We live in a world now where God is a unicorn. Where you're a little weird if you believe that God actually exists and God isn't present. God isn't anywhere because God doesn't exist. And we live in a world where 500 years ago, you were the weird one if you didn't believe that God existed. And now we live in a world that you're the weird one if you do believe that God exists. And that culturally is, is where we live. Okay? I, this is just life. Okay? You can say, Pastor, you're wrong. It's, ju it's just the world we live in. God is not present. God is not here. We don't believe in him. Okay? That's the world we live in. That's not what I believe. I think y'all... Are you all with me on that? So that's the world we live in. Now, what does this have to do with Jacob? This has to do everything with Jacob. Because what we understand and what I want you to see today is that I could come up here every Sunday and I could explain that to y'all and I could talk about how terrible it is. I could talk about how terrible the world is and that the world's going to hell and I could yell about it because y'all have never really heard me yell about anything. But I could yell about it 
And do you know what it changes? Nothing. So what do we do? Well, I think we can go back to Jacob. Because the story of Jacob is a story that tells us in in chapter 32, verse 30, that Jacob named that place Peniel. Because in that place, I have seen God face to face. Because in that place, there was no doubt of the existence of God. There was no doubt of what in philosophy, what we would call transcendence. That there is one greater than us. That there is a divine. There's no doubt in Jacob's mind who showed up that night, who wrestled with him that night. Jacob, do you believe that there is a real God? And I think Jacob would take us over to Peniel and say, this is the place. This is the place where I have seen God face to face, but I was spared. This is the place where God and I struggled. This is the place that we fought. Verse 31 is a reminder to us, the sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping. Limping because of his hip. You see, these two verses are incredible verses to us. And this whole story kind of helps us understand. If you go down, if you back up a little bit to to verse 28, I've got both of them on the screen, verse 31 and verse 28. Verse 31, the sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. In verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God. We learn an important truth from Jacob's struggle. The important truth that we learn, the important thing that we understand about our lives is is we begin to ask the question, what do we do? What do you do when we struggle or have an ongoing struggle? Well, we have options. Option one is we just let go of our faith because we all know that people of faith don't struggle. Or option two might be a little bit better is that we don't let go of our faith, but rather we allow our faith to be characterized, to take on new life because of the struggle. That our struggle is, or that our faith is formed around a struggle, that we are renamed. Jacob, who are you? I'm a heel. God says, no, you're, you're one that has struggled with God. You are one that is limping because of that struggle. You are one that has a story to tell, and that story that you have to tell is a story that reminds us, that tells us that in the midst of that story, there is a God because I struggle, because I have a limp. This morning, it comes down to two questions. Who are you? I'm a heel? Or I'm someone who has been named by God? 
And the second question is, why are you limping? Or what about your struggle? I think what the world needs to hear from us, what the world needs to hear from the church, isn't five facts that tells us that God is real. What they need to hear are the stories, the stories that go into our community, the stories that are infused in our community to remind us of struggle. Stories of lost jobs, stories of cancer diagnosis, Stories of lost children, stories of addiction, stories of heartache. And when we name those struggles, we also name a person. That there are people that we can call by name who have had those struggles. That we can trust the God who Dwight, who Nolan, who Luke, Charlie, who Sam, we can trust the God who they struggled with because it's the same God. The same God that said to Jacob, no, it's not your name anymore. You have been marked by your struggle and you are marked by a limp. And it's the same God who redefined Jacob's story is the same God who calls the Israelites out of Egypt and the same God who left an empty tomb on Easter. That same God. Next week, we are getting into Moses and getting a kind of have one week with the Moses story. But as I've thought about it, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But when you know the story of the burning bush, one of the stories that we know about that, or one of the pieces we know about that story is, is that in that story, God gives us his name. But part of that story that I think we miss sometimes is that Moses says in the middle of that story, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? Do you remember what God says back? Moses at the burning bush says to God, who am I? And God answers him. In verse 12, it says, God answered, and I will certainly be with you. Moses, you want to know your name? You want to know your name after you have met God, after you have struggled with God, after you have run away from Egypt? because you killed somebody, you're out here as a shepherd with your father-in-law. Do you want to know your name now? Your name is the one who I am with. And guess what, Moses? It's enough. It's enough. You aren't defined by your mistakes. You aren't defined by what happened in the past. Now they go with you as a struggle. They characterize our faith, but that's not what defines us. For we are defined by God. What is your name? Who who am I? Well, you're the one who God is with. You are the one who God is present You are the one, the one where God resides. 
My hope and my challenge from kind of walking through these stories with you is that we begin to redefine our names, that we begin to answer the question, who are you, why are you limping? But they're not just questions for a Sunday morning, they're not just questions for a sermon. But the way that the world hears about a God who they say doesn't exist is by hearing people tell their story. By people sharing the struggle. By people not being afraid to share the struggle. To be open and to be people who say, I'm John. This is the struggle that I face or this is what I have gone to, or this is what my family has gone through. These are the places in my life where I thought there was no other way and that I had to fight with God. And I've limped. But in the process, I've seen how God has worked. This is how I know that God is real because he showed up in the midst of my struggle. He redefined who I am. He gave me a new name. I'm not a heel anymore. But I'm someone who has been given a new name and new life. And the God who did that, it's the same God who did it for Jacob. He's the same God that parted the Red Sea. He's the same God that sent his son. He's the same God that resurrected that son. And he's the same God that is with us today that is with us when we go from this place, that is with us when we go out into the world. My hope and my prayer is that we become people that aren't afraid to tell our story. They're stories of struggle, they're stories of limping, but they're stories that can change the world. That our limps aren't something that we're afraid of, our limps aren't something that we run away from, but we learn from Jacob and say, right here, this is the place. This is the place where I started limping. And because of that limp, I know that God is here. And that God is with us. Today, as we close, we will close as we have, have been closing. That if you need a pastor to pray with, Pastor James will be right over at this altar. If you need to be anointed for healing, I will be right down at this altar and would be happy to, and would love to be able to anoint you, whether it is with healing or whether it is for physical, mental, spiritual healing. But maybe for some of us, we, we need to just find a place to be quiet. A place to say, you know what, I've run from my struggle. I haven't shared my limp. God, this morning I've heard you tell me that maybe I need to start telling my story. Maybe I need to remind myself and remind other people that right here is where I saw God work. That I know God's real because he showed up and worked. Maybe we just need to find a place and just pray and say, God, use my story how you want to use it. So that the world will know that there is a God who are you? Why are you limping? Let us stand as we sing.